0: Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello people, I'm very excited to bring you episode two of the Youth in Education podcast. Today, our Director of Research, Dr. Sam Bars, leads a wide-ranging and thought-provoking discussion based on interesting research that has recently come across. Sam is joined by LKM co-researcher and former teacher, George Duablis. Sam and George discuss how attending outstanding nurseries may not be that important. Social segregation within the state sector, white working-class boys, and finally, grammar schools. They get stuck into some pretty meaty topics, but all with their customary dry wit. Anyway, enough of me. Over to Sam and George. Let's get geeking. LKM co-believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now?
1: So, Sam, uh, you had some research that you wanted to talk about to do with early years.
2: Yeah, this was a report from the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSE. Um, and it's a really interesting study because it's one of those studies that comes along and sort of blows away everything you thought you knew or everyone else thought um, about a particular policy or area of the education system. Basically, they found that the quality of nursery settings didn't seem to have much of an impact at all on how kids do later on in education. So specifically they took, I think it was data for about 2 million, administrative data, on 2 million young people, so a massive sample, Um, and they followed them from all the different nurseries they went to and they looked at the Ofsted grading of those nurseries and also the level of qualification of the people working in those nursery settings. Mm -hmm. Um, Then they looked at kids who ended up at the same primary school and looked at how they were doing or how their teachers assessed them to be doing at the end of um, reception baseline, which is a year into your primary education. And they found that basically going to an Ofsted outstanding nursery, for instance, or a nursery where there were loads of early years graduates, highly qualified yeah. early years professionals, didn't really seem to have much of an impact on how really? teachers assess kids to be doing at the end of the first year of primary. So it
1: made no difference?
2: Uh, there were some really negligible differences, but it's not... It certainly, they certainly weren't the magnitude of difference that you would say is significant in policy terms or the kind of thing where you'd say it seems clear that you should aim to send your kids to an outstanding nursery, at least on the data and the uh, yeah. analysis that they did. And
1: do you think teacher assessments tell the whole story?
2: So it's an interesting one. I think they even flagged this in the paper. It's one of those nice, really honest research papers where they say quite early on, we measured something this way and actually other people in the past have done things Differently, um, and there are merits and demerits of the way that we've done it. So they, for instance, their outcome measure is how kids are doing a year into primary after they've had a full year of kind of uh, of, of primary teaching, where arguably the kind of um, the quality of practice in terms of the level of qualification is a bit more uniform yeah. once you're into the kind of the primary school sector, and so there might be that kind of that leveling effect. You know, there might be some disparities and outcomes between different qualities of nurseries, but they're all evened out in that first year of primary. Whereas other studies have looked at how kids do at the end of the um, at the end of the early years. So the yeah. foundation stage profile schools is how you would assess how a kid is doing at the very end of nursery. Whereas they look at how they're doing at the end of primary.
1: Yeah. I mean does that go against then a lot of the early years focus that we've had over the last few years?
2: Yeah, it's a really tricky one because there's been, I think Really positively and encouragingly, a lot more focus on the early years in re- in recent years in terms of funding, in terms of policy. Um, you could or couldn't see the government's extension of free childcare as, uh, as a focus on the early years too. Um, I think it. I think what it says is that um, nursery quality. I don't think this a report like this makes the case that early years or even the quality of nursery broadly considered doesn't matter, doesn't have an impact. It's just the way that Ofsted measures it, Um, and maybe the way that the things that teacher assessment focuses on. So going back to your point about what does teacher assessment actually look at, it might just be that those particular things that we measure aren't correlated,
1: Um,
2: but it might be that. Kids' wider development, for instance, is affected by the quality of the nursery setting they go to, or yeah. um, the other elements of nursery quality that aren't picked up on by Ofsted, um, do have an impact on how kids go on to do at school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what this paper is trying to do is saying that we all know um, that things like Ofsted judgments are used; they're a key lever in um, the, the, call, the kind of school choice agenda, yeah. uh, or the you know early years. Um, kind of parental choice agenda, you know, parents will seek out the best graded nurseries and, and try to send their kids there, and that's, how the, that's one element of how the system improves through competition. Yeah. They're yeah. saying that actually there doesn't really seem to be much in how Ofsted judges a nursery. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so either we ch- I need to change what Ofsted does, what they look at in nursery settings, or place a bit less weight on, on, on what that means for how parents should be considering those judgments.
1: Yeah. It fits into a wider debate, doesn't it, about what is the role of Ofsted and yeah. what are we trying to get out of these groups? Yeah,
2: Definitely. And I can imagine, I mean, my daughter started going to nursery a couple of months ago. Um, and it was, so it's an Ofsted outstanding nursery, but my sense is, my, my main concern is that it just felt like a felt like a safe place and she's only for instance she's only in nursery one day a week and this is where early is is so interesting nurseries are so interesting because some kids are in there for their five days a week some kids are in there half a day a week one day a week so firstly the impact of nursery is going to be really different for those kids but also i think if they're in there less of the time certainly for me it was more a question of well is is it safe does it seem Mm -hmm. like it's well managed is is the playground great and big with loads of cool stuff for her to climb on. Yeah. Um, and I didn't necessarily factor in the Ofsted grading so much. To the extent that I did, it was mainly about the safeguarding.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: you know, yeah. um, my wife's a social worker, so we care about that kind of stuff. And I think maybe that core role of Ofsted is, for some, well, for me personally, but I think actually more widely, quite a key, quite a key focus. Getting yeah. the core basics right. Um, yeah. It's probably the most important thing. And,
1: and, and there is a danger that Ofsted Overreached itself and starts to look at maybe too many things um, and doesn't focus on, on ultimately what it's all about, which is parents like you and, and what they're looking for, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. Definitely, one thing that I um, my mum always said this to me um, as you as you kind of get older and you start to think about, well, one day you know I'll have kids myself and we'll be choosing schools. Yeah. Um, my mum's a school governor, and I was like, well, you know, I. I really worry because around us there aren't, there aren't many schools that are Ofsted outstanding, and um, we live in a part of the country where there aren't actually that many Ofsted schools that are greatly good or outstanding. And it starts to worry me a little bit. Yeah. And I said, "Well, actually, you know, what really matters is you know you go into a school and get a feel for it and see if the ethos and feel for the school would would match would yep. match with you know with yeah. your kids and see if you think they would get on well there." And probably the same thing goes for earlier settings as well. I think mm-hmm. there is when you have something like a off stage grading which can only be one of four things. We focus on them quite totemically I think.
1: Um, It's easy to forget how you actually feel and that subjective experience that that you and and your child's going to have.
2: Definitely Mm -hmm. and from a research point of view I guess that captures all all the variation that we can't measure or that isn't measured using a a single kind of indicator like an off grade but what this research points out is that if you're a parent maybe um, chill out a bit if you're worrying about the Ofsted grading of your, of your local nursery, which I think in a way is quite a, a positive thing. And it doesn't undermine the role of Ofsted, but I think it gives yeah. us some critical food for thought about the things they should or shouldn't
1: be sure. measuring. Um, okay, so, so first recommendation, chill out. Um, <laughs> uh, should we move on to the next piece of research? So, yeah. um, I've been looking at this work by School Dash, uh, along with The Challenge and iCoco. I mean, firstly, um, so we're sitting here with headphones on. If if the listeners could see us now, I think they'd make quite a sight. And I think uh, (laughs) it also illustrates we got really excited about this uh, this this report. It's got some cool maps on. It's got some some super cool maps. Yeah. Yeah. So so if you're a geek and uh, you like maps, then check it out. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, well, house price effects. You said that's something that interests you quite a bit, Sam. Um, mm. It kind of ties in with what this report was about. Mm. Um, wh- wh- what's the research we've already done about house price effects? Well, it's actually something
2: we've blogged on recently based on some Sutton Trust research, um, but it's a really fascinating report. Um, looking at selection, the sorts of selection that goes on in the non-selective sector, so selective comprehensives. Um, for a while we've known that things like house prices mean that comprehensives in some areas have a very different intake to comprehensives yeah. and other other areas, and through access to financial resources that allow parents to buy more expensive houses nearer to better schools, yeah. even though it's in the non-selective sector, um, something like quite you know tight se- uh, selection is actually is actually going on. You know, parental choice is yeah. leading to selection, um, and this report showed that house prices are a driver of selection, but actually um, in high house price areas. There are still a greater proportion of free school meals, kids, than there are in the schools in those areas, which, in short, shows that if you're a poorer kid who somehow managed to, as a family, you know, live or move into a high house price area, you're still less likely to get into that probably good local school than yeah. your better-off peers. So there's, a, there's some really big forces that school that we're having to work against, even in the non-selective sector.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I I think that's one issue that's been talked about a lot. I mean, Theresa May, who we're we're going to get onto later, has Mm. mentioned the the house price lottery aspect. Um, What these maps are showing, though, is is actually um, ethnicity makes quite a big difference as well. Mm. Um, So they split up white British students and other students. um, And they looked at how they were distributed around the country. So what was found was that actually um, in certain areas, um, the number of white British students uh, in an area... If there, were, if there were lots of white British students in the area, then the number of uh, other students that were in, in heavily dominated white British schools was not that high, and vice versa. And what you found is um, schools with more than 15% difference between its 10 closest neighbours you would expect that to, to not be that many that, that had that kind of segregation. Mm-hmm. What you actually found was there's quite a lot of schools in the country that are split up like that. Um, now we got onto, to earlier when we were discussing this, quite an interesting debate about all the different drives of this and what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that, that is picked out by the report is faith schools that I thought was super, super interesting. So what the report is kind of trying to say, uh, this this school's dash report, is that maybe faith schools are leading to more social segregation and we're starting to see that in the fact that actually um, in an area where you have a faith school you're going to get a disproportionate number of certain groups of students going to that school. Um, now the question is, is the benefit of faith schools outweighing the, the, the likely social segregation that you might get? Mm. Um, I mean, what do you think about that? What What What? should we? What, what sort of questions should we be asking about faith schools?
2: Mm. I think I mean looking at the attainment of faith schools there's it's clear to see the appeal um, of sending your kid to a faith school mm. because often the attainment of faith schools is on average better than um, the non-faith schools. Um, I mean also it also shows how education policy is not, can't stand in isolation from um, other areas of other really important areas of social policy and also things are done really differently in different in different countries yeah, um, yeah. so I think it the multiculturalism agenda which is being quite ruthlessly critiqued at the moment actually And we're going to come on to a kind of defense of it um, yeah. in terms of the running me trust report um, that came out last week, but I think um, faith schools are, are seen as kind of standing in tension with that, and it's an early form of kind of segregating children based on one element of their background. Um, but at the same time, I think it's quite important to to afford people the opportunities to send their kids to schools that will kind of have some, be able to kind of tie into the cultural, or religious elements of, of the upbringing they've had. So yeah. it's a really tricky one. And actually, um, for all, I think the focus on faith schools is really is really merited. Um, but you know, I think there are other perhaps less obvious forms of segregation in the education system between richer and poorer students um, yeah, yeah. and people from different ethnic backgrounds, whether or not they have different religious backgrounds. Um, yeah, for it's, sure. it's a far more, I think, segregated school system than sometimes we think it is. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I haven't actually... <laughs> I've, I've given you a classic kind of researcher's response there. Uh, <laughs> and considered all the fascinating... Uh, kind of ramifications and implica- impl- implications in other areas of policy um, without really giving you an answer. Well,
1: why, don't we, why don't we move on to the Runnymede report and then maybe yeah. tie that back in because I think mm. they kind of fit together quite well didn't they, the, the Runnymede report that you wanted to talk about? Mm.
2: Yeah this was, um, this was a report um, on those occasions where I went to, I went to talk on, on a panel um, and sat next to me was the director of the Runnymede Trust. Um, and he'd had a really busy morning on the phones doing radio interviews, um, discussing a report that I really should have—I really should have picked up on. So I had, I had a, a, a lot of catching up. Yeah, it was um, one of those slightly awkward moments where um, I, I had to confess to not being aware that this report had come out, and it was exactly the kind of report that I would have would have wanted to pick up on. So the good thing is that he flagged it to me. We had a good yeah. chat on London Bridge, in the wind, really about its main thing, findings. Yeah. I then was able to go home and, and read it in a, in a less windy environment.
1: Like, um, well, let's hope he's listening now.
2: Yeah, let's, yeah, <laughs> let, let's hope he's listening now. And yeah. sorry for not picking up on the report at the time, but it was great to have, have met you and heard about it. Um, I think a really, it was one of those moments where someone, um, directly, but really constructively challenges something that you yourself have worked on. So last year, LKM Co um, wrote a report for King's College London on the access to higher education of white working class boys, and white working class boys um, is uh, an increasingly strong focus in government policy, education policy, but also more broadly. You know, Theresa May mentioned white working class boys in her her maiden speech as Prime Minister last Mm -hmm. year, Um, and what the Running Me Trust report says is that actually if you look at um, some of the really strong forms of disadvantage that white working class boys face actually they're shared with working class pupils from all different ethnic backgrounds and we don't really gain much in fact we lose a lot by focusing specifically on working class pupils from particular gender and ethnic mm. backgrounds and that work, the working class community, working class young people actually share um, common material conditions which are actually far more important than kind of other elements of their of their background, um, at least in terms of the way in which they're systematically disadvantaged in the yeah, education yeah. system. Really, it's the fact that, for instance, they come from areas of material deprivation that's more important than their ethnic background or their gender.
1: Yeah. So it ties into what, what the point you made about faith schools earlier, maybe mm. um, that sometimes maybe in these debates we end up focusing on the wrong things.
2: Yeah, I think so, and I I think that comes through really strongly in the Ronnie Meads. It's a it's a collection of a collection of essays. Um, with this central argument at their, at their core, that really we run the risk when we, I suppose it's that risk that we always run when we do a piece of research targeting a particular group of, of young people. Mm. Um, you know, we see that, yes, statistically white working class boys do appear to be the lowest attainers at the end of Key Stage 4, they're also the least likely group to go on to higher education, so you know, they seem like a really important group to go and research but we always run that risk of forgetting that there are plenty of other groups, white working class girls, black Caribbean boys from working class backgrounds who basically do as badly at the end of school and are, you know, a little bit more likely to go on to higher education but not much. So we run that risk of ignoring other groups and increasing that that sense of segregation. I think that's the real concern at the heart of the running meat set of essays and I think it's a really timely contribution, particularly in the current political climate, the rise of populism, um, it shows how quite dry activities like doing, or what are seen as dry, impartial activities like doing research um, aren't at all. You know, the distinctions we make, the groups we choose to analyse, the labels we use yeah, can unknowingly sure. entrench categories and distinctions that maybe aren't all that useful.
1: Yeah, I mean, without wanting to uh, get too sociological about it, but uh, I think there is that's, an important... That's import- never a bad thing, Josh, <what>? I mean we, we, it's important to consider the discourse and, and, and the language that we use and, and I think you make a really important point about labels mm. um, and maybe in this focus on white working class boys we are we are, we are are using labels in, in maybe uh, maybe the wrong way mm. I mean one thing I wanted to ask you about the report is um, the Running Me Trust makes the point that um, white working class boys have a sense that, that something's been lost, an element of status has been lost from certain communities. Mm. Um, Is that something you saw in your research uh, that you did for LKMCO on on white working class boys?
2: Mm. Something that came out as a really strong theme in our research um, on that group of young people was um, a difficulty in seeing the relevance of higher education mm. and partly driven by the fact that their parents were unlikely to have gone on to university and also that the jobs that their parents did and which traditionally may have, been, may have formed the backbone of the economy in their local area weren't jobs that would have traditionally required going into higher education. Um, it's clear to see how that could lead you as a young person to question what value you're going to extract from yeah. going on to university. That was definitely a really, a really key barrier. I think there's then there can then be a series of really quite difficult um, and unhelpful steps at looking at why why local economies have changed in certain ways. For instance, you know, in some local areas, the labour market isn't very dynamic um, or doesn't really is nowhere near able to support all of the young people
0: uh, yeah, in a local yeah. area.
2: Certainly not with particularly well paid or highly skilled work. Um, the risk, and I think the running meat Trust would, would want to flag this too. Um, is that by focusing on the ways in which we can label people as different we encourage people to look for scapegoats for that and yeah. actually you know local economies are floundering in some areas and that's a real issue for I think for working-class people but for all working-class people not just white working-class people but but is there not a
1: point I mean if, if we go back to the the school schools dash yeah a big one school dash maps um, So so one of those maps showed the proportion of white British students by parliamentary constituency. Mm. Um, And what you find is, generally, outside of the big cities, you do have a much higher proportion of white British students, which is intuitively what we might expect. Um, Are are the issues faced by students growing up in in some of those areas, are they not different to to the issues faced by um, a more diverse, group of students in an inner city?
2: Mm. I would say, I think I would probably have more allegiance with the Runnymede Trust line that actually it's, a lot of it comes down to economic conditions, the material conditions that young people grow up in and that actually there are, there are real advantages to living in an urban environment yeah. if we focus on things like labor market outcomes or access to higher education for instance. I mean there are some rural counties where there are no universities and it's clear to see why that might be a barrier to to why some young people go on to higher education um, and why some young people struggle to see the relevance of high skills in a local labor market that's really not very diverse or dynamic. But I don't know if that's about ethnic diversity or just the economic diversity that living in an urban environment brings. I mean there is some really interesting stuff on Um, the level of qualification of immigrants and the value the the extent to which they value education Mm. Um, I think you know when people have uprooted um, moved their families um, because they wanted to they wanted to seek better economic and educational opportunities it's clear to see why that that may bring with it different forms of aspiration different Mm. forms of expectation for how their kids are going to do Um, and there's interesting interesting work being done to see if some of that is driving in London, for instance, higher attainment for all young people.
1: I mean, from my point of view, um, having been a teacher just down the road from where we're sitting now in Hackney, um, I certainly noticed the difference in opportunities between um, when I was at school in a rural part of the UK, um, and kind of work experience was maybe doctor, vet maybe a solicitor, someone like that, mm. um, compared to, to the students in Hackney who, who have been introduced to so many different industries that, that are based here and, and just next door in the city and places like that. Mm. I do think, yeah, m- maybe um, these problems are more related to geography and, and the economies around the schools rather than what happens to be the colour of your skin, and, and mm. yeah, maybe that's what the, the Running Mead report is saying. Mm. Um, should we, should we move on to, the to our final piece? Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is a bit of a non-education one, um, but I was just going to talk about uh, Theresa May. So David Runciman uh, has profiled her in the London Review of Books um, as part of a, as a review of, of a biography of Theresa May. Um, and it makes some really interesting comparisons between her and David Cameron. Um, so apparently both Theresa May and David Cameron, when they were at school, proclaimed they were going to be Prime Minister. I mean, I don't know if you, you ever did that when you were at school, Sam? Um, Pretty much every day. Every day, yeah, so, me too. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously super confident people. Um, um, but I think what's really interesting is that they have a very different vision of politics. So where um, Cameron, Osborne and Gove are very much ideas politicians willing to make deals, um, she's all about following through on commitments and I think you've seen this with immigration. She inherited a commitment. It wasn't even her commitment in the first place, but when she was made Home Secretary, she, she inherited the commitment from the manifesto that the Tories would bring down immigration to the tens of thousands. And she followed through with it with a persistence and doggedness that really, I don't think anyone in the Tory party, according to Runciman, expected us to go through with it with. Um, and you've kind of seen the same with Brexit. I mean, normally she was a Remainer, um, but now she's she's really determined to pursue hard Brexit. And I think why I thought this was interesting is is obviously with all the debate on, on grammar schools that's been going on, um, Runciman seems to imply that once she's promised something, Theresa May goes through with it. Um, and I do wonder whether um, now she's promised that, that she's going to bring back selection, mm. whatever uh, evidence we throw at her, maybe she's she's now going to feel like she's committed to doing it and is, is going to push it through regardless mm.
2: i mean for me that just mirrors the the wider public debate on grammar schools yeah. on on selection overt selection and education which is that they're you know lkm Co. is firmly of the belief that the research you know overwhelmingly demonstrates that grammar schools deliver you know very little if any benefit in terms of social mobility, social justice, wider educational outcomes, apart from benefiting the small group of people who who go to them. And it's directly at the expense of those who don't manage to go. As a system, it's just not the way forward for a more socially just society. Um, But despite that, that weight of research, it doesn't seem to be the way to convince people, especially people who've benefited from going to grammar schools. That they, are, that they aren't the way forward. You know, yeah. research, no matter how much research you throw at a wall, it's not always gonna stick.
1: Yeah, well this is it, and, and what, what Runciman argues is that while on the surface they seem to be very different politicians, mm-hmm. um, Theresa May and David Cameron and, and maybe some of that crowd, um, in a sense, she, she's what, what he argues is that she's not necessarily more principled or, or more rational. Um, she's kind of basing her decisions on, on uh, some fairly spurious motives, let's say. Um, I mean, the grammar school's uh, proposal, according to Laura McInerney at Schools Week, she says it's, it's largely down to, to the beliefs of Nick Timothy, who, who's Theresa May's special advisor. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, we've, we've got a bit of a problem when, when politicians um, are more about making promises and sticking to them than um, really engaging in that dialogue and, as you say, listening to substantial evidence around social mobility mm. that exists. So, yeah, I mean not the most positive note to end on, um, but hopefully if we continue to to, to engage in that dialogue then uh, mm. then something I've run out of words to say. <laughs>
2: I think I would entirely agree with your sentiment that research can't take place out, you know, from a non-political it, it can't take place aside from the political system and the people that run the country mm. and I think it's pieces like this are really important to get an insight into the sort of leadership that we're working with um, yeah. and their likelihood or unlikelihood of turning back on policies that we wholeheartedly disagree with yeah. um, and the strategies we might need to use to convince people that we yeah. disagree and we ah. think they should turn back We've all gone through the education system as, as individuals, and our parents made choices on, on our behalf about the schools that we would go to. And this is really, this is really personal stuff, and I think that matters, and that has to be treated with respect, no matter how strongly people might disagree on these things. Um, and I think actually debate breaks down when respect is respect is lost. There's always there's always room for respect in these sorts of debates. And I think it's really crucial if people are going to be convinced to change their minds on what is at face value poor policy.
1: Yeah, and I think, that, I think that ties in quite nicely with what we were saying before about nurseries and, and school choice and, mm. yeah, the fact that education isn't always just an objective uh, science per se. Yeah. There are some kind of subjective elements to it. So
2: Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating place to
0: end, George. On that bombshell. <laughs> Let's leave it there.